Hey, good morning, Harrisburg. Good to see you, everybody. Uh, it's always fun to see what's going on here. I saw the guy's archery tag. It's going to happen. What could go wrong? Just a bunch of guys running around in the woods. So I'm sure you'll have some special prayer meetings for that event. Uh, hey, so my I'm the lead pastor of a church in uh, Philadelphia, the Liberty Church in River Wards. And I also serve as the director of the Liberty Network. We have a leadership team for the network. It was a lot of fun. A week from yesterday, we had a day retreat with the elders from all the different Liberty churches. It was fun to hang out with uh, Matt and your elders. And one thing we did was we just prayed for the region. And, you know, there's some depressing stats out there. There are 3,500 churches closed in the United States every year. 3,500. But did you know, and let's give thanks for this, 4,000 churches started last year. And uh, probably a little bit more than that is going to happen this coming year. There is a growing number of church planting churches. Churches that say, hey, we want to explain the Christian faith and who Jesus is for people who are exploring Christ and who are new to this. People who it's, uh, Be safe places where people can come and ask questions. And churches that want to start other churches that more people could hear about Jesus. And that's happening in, a, in our country. We ought to give thanks for it. And we've prayed for our state. We've prayed for the cities in our state. Uh, we've prayed for the Harrisburg area. And we prayed that God would continue to raise up servant leaders to send out uh, I'll read a passage later in the sermon where Jesus travels through the cities and villages and he looks at people and has compassion, sees that, it says, the passage in Matthew 9 says, he has compassion, seeing that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he gets his followers to pray. He says, this is the the harvest, uh, the fields are white. And pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers for the harvest. It's a way of saying, let's pray for more churches and more people to send out. By God's grace, uh, the Liberty Network has a couple church planting residents, and one of them has preached here, Evan Curry. His family has been in Northeast Philadelphia for 125 years. He and his wife love Northeast Philadelphia, pray for Northeast Philadelphia, want to plant a church in Northeast Philadelphia. He's, he had already been a pastor He'd already been part of a church plant, but he, he's come and just hung out with the Liberty Network for a year and a half to learn and ready himself to plant. And we had to really rejoice about that. And uh, so I offer that by way of encouragement and also as a reminder to let's pray for our region. Let's pray for our world and our region. And by God's grace, it was a great time with all those elders. So I'm going to continue in Jonah. I'm going to ask you now to turn to Jonah 4, page 775. We could have a speed drill. Who can find Jonah the fastest? Jonah's a hard book to find, let's be honest. It's really short in the middle of that section at the end of the Old Testament. It's hard to remember what books are where. Page 775 in the books that are in the chairs. And we're going to finish out the book of Jonah today. And so I need to do a, a... a previously in Jonah section. Previously in Jonah. This is where we've been. Jonah is a prophet during the reign 
of King Jeroboam II. We learn that elsewhere in the Bible, but he actually lived. That king that he served under, that king of Israel, reigned 786 to 746 BCE. Long time ago. Uh, He's an historical figure, and he's a prophet. He's told to go to a mortal enemy, Nineveh, a brutal city that existed for over a thousand years, and they just had a reputation, well-deserved, of being very cruel in war. Brutal. Like there's uh, inscriptions where one of their kings boasted about the pile of heads that he left outside this one city to, after conquering them, he left a, a big pyramid of heads to taunt and humiliate the people there. And Jonah doesn't want to go. He goes the opposite direction. He runs, and he experiences a judgment from God in the form of the storm, this brutal storm. And he says, throw me over. It's my fault. I'm running from God, the God who made the earth and the sea. I'm running for that God. And many of you, if you were here that Sunday, you sort of heard the the sailors thinking, so the God who made the sea, awesome, and you decide to get into a ship. Good job. And they throw him over. He experiences this judgment from God. He also experiences a rescue and salvation from God. He's in this huge fish or whale of some kind for three days. And we don't have the clip of the YouTube of him waking up on the beach Can you imagine finding himself on land? And he, or how else would we have this? He he writes a prayer, and it's included in Jonah 2. And so he, he, he ran from God. He was judged by God. He's rescued by God. And he's a messenger of God again. And in Jonah 3, he announces God's judgment against Nineveh. And he says, God is going to judge you. And here's the thing, they repent. They absolutely repent and cry out to God. And Jonah 4, it's really, it's full of argument. Jonah has a beef with God. Is very honest about it. And actually, God has a beef God has an argument with Jonah. And that might surprise you. You might think that uh, the Bible actually takes what's hidden in our hearts, our resistance with God, displeasure with God, questioning God, and actually puts it, drags it from deep down in our hearts and puts it on display, brings it out in the open. And so those are the two arguments we're going to, to read about. Jonah's argument with God, God's argument with Jonah, And I'll pick up the account at chapter 3, verse 10. So will you follow along, page 775. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
Therefore now, O Lord, be pleased to take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And this is God's word. So here it is. Uh, God relents of the disaster that he had said he would do. And chapter 4, verse 1, it's very interesting. The same word is used. Uh, it says, the, the Hebrew word is ra'ah. And God re- relented of the bad he was going to do. And then the same word is in the very next sentence. And this was very ra'ah to Jonah. God relented of the bad he was going to do. And this was very bad to Jonah. <laughs> Jonah wanted the bad to happen. To Jonah, it was a great disaster. It was a huge ra'ah, bad thing. And he became angry, and the, the language is he burned with anger. And he has a beef with God's character. He, and this is the weird thing about this next sentence, right? He says all these great things about God, and then says, and that's what I was afraid of. This is why I ran because you're forgiving and compassionate and all that stuff, and I knew you would do this. That's why I ran. And he recounts other, he's really, these, all these words are in other scriptures to describe God's character. He's merciful, he's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. When the English Standard Version, the ESV, translates the Hebrew word for steadfast love. It's this Hebrew word, hesed, which is God's covenant love. It's a covenantal word. God is faithful to his promises. And when God says he's going to forgive, he does. And when he says he has, he really has. And he means what he says. And he says all these great things about God And then says, this is what I said. And look how gentle God is. What does God say? Do you do well to be angry? It means a couple different things. It's, how's that working out for you, Jonah? How's that? Is that nice? And it's also, there's a moral edge to the word. Is it causing good that you burn? Is it causing good? Is it causing wellness that you're angry? And look at God's grace for Jonah and for us. Jonah doesn't answer, but walks away. Now, one of the questions that we've asked as we go through this book, what does this show us about us? What does this show us about the human heart? What do the running legs of Jonah show us about the sinful human heart? What does Jonah's anger show us about the sinful human heart? And just a little recap on Jonah's story. 2 Kings 14 records that he served under this Jeroboam II, son of Joash, who actually was a king of Israel who, quote from 2 Kings 14, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the first Jeroboam, which he made Israel to see to sin, and yet he protected Israel. God worked through this king that was not good. He restored the border of Israel. 
according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who is from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. There was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. And so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. God worked through a king that wasn't following God, listening to God, and leading other people to sing, to sin. God was very gracious for a sinning king and a sinning people just because of his compassion, just because he didn't want them to be crushed. And he saw that their suffering was very bitter. And so God had pity and compassion. And what's revealed about Jonah's story He wants grace for him and his people and judgment and justice for them. He depended for his people on God's graciousness, his mercy, and his compassion. But he's demanding in his heart, could you just judge them right now like you said you might? Grace for me, judgment for them. And there's an us-them going on. And so that's one of the things in wrestling with this passage, we need to ask, where is there an us-them in our lives? Where is there a me-him or me-her in your life where you want grace for you and basically judgment for somebody else? And this can spin out racially, us them, economically us them, profession wise religion wise, us them, Lord I want different treatment what accelerates this in the human heart Uh, it's helpful to talk about this in election year, there was a, a study by the National Academy of Sciences in 2014 which examined why opposing groups Okay, National Academy of Sciences studied scientifically why do opposing groups find compromise so difficult? And they were examining Republicans and Democrats. Why is it so hard to compromise? And the researchers concluded there is widespread political, quote, motive, attribution, asymmetry. Motive, attribution, asymmetry. And big words that basically mean I view my motives differently than I view your motives. We go funhouse mirror on motives, okay? Mine are awesome, and we distort our motives, and we distort other people's, like a funhouse mirror, your head looks huge, it's bigger than your body. We distort other people's motives. So basically, this is what this, let's apply this politically. Uh, Today, millions of Americans, this is from the article, believe that their side is basically benevolent, while the other side is evil and out to get them and destroy America. My side, our aggressive behavior, when we act a little nutty or aggressive, we attribute that to love, just because we love the truth so much. And the other side, it's because of hatred. And so Arthur C. Brooks is a columnist in the New York Times. He quotes this study and says, hey, this culture feeds a mentality that crowds out Give and take makes compromise difficult because every difference is a pitched battle between good, us, and evil, them. And us, them. 
That's what sin does. We funhouse mere motives. A daily example of this, driving. Everyone makes mistakes driving once in a while. You know, you make mistakes. You do something bad. You pull out in front of somebody, and you know, hey, I'm having a rough day. There's a lot going on in the car, okay? This is very understandable how this has happened. Don't freak out, everybody. You don't need to lay on your horn. Other people do that. Clearly, there's an idiot who never should have had a license, ever, <laughs> right? That's motive attribution, asymmetry. Your mistakes are in the realm of reason, very understandable, and other people's shows that they shouldn't even be on the road. Um, we don't view ourselves with the same grace that we view other people. What else contributes to that? Um, another study in 2010, four social psychologists from Stanford published an article entitled Victim Entitlement to Behave Selfishly. And in the culture of, of victimhood, how that, it was a study that shows how that tends to make us meaner. And this is what they did. They had a, 104 people divided up into two groups. One group, we want you to write a short essay about when you're bored. So people meditate. And this was really boring. And they write out that essay. Another group, write out a short essay about when life was unfair. And they ask people, dwell on a time when you were the victim. It happens, right? It's real. When you are on the receiving end of unjust tr treatment, and at the end of all the times that they had asked people to do this, the researcher asked, uh, hey, could you help me with something real quick? Would you help me with this simple task? And the people who had meditated in their essay on how they had been wronged were 20% less likely to help the researchers with the simple task. And as feeling 13% more entitled, the researchers noted they were also more likely to steal pens and leave trash. <laughs> um, what, what does that mean? When you meditate all the time, on how you're wronged, you're more likely to be mean. Think, if you dwell, which we all have been wronged, and that's real, and the healing means acknowledging that and being honest about that, but living there, you will be statistically more likely to be a meaner, less helpful person. Now, this kind of us-them us, me, I'm the victim. Or us, us, me, I'm, I'm the good person in the story right now, and you guys are the problem. It's very difficult around Jesus. Uh, there's a guy named Miroslav Volf. He's a theologian from Croatia. He was at Fuller Theological Seminary in California, and he's been at Yale now for a long time. And he's reflected and written about forgiveness with not normal family wounds in the background, which are very deep and significant, or other, like, loss of employment or things like that, which can really set you back life-wise, life but in the context of the bloodshed in the Balkans 
in the context of war and horrible brutality. And he says this about us, them. No one can be in the presence of God, the crucified Messiah, for long without overcoming the double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity, and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. Like being around Jesus, because the only reason why you and I have a relationship with God is through his grace and mercy in Jesus, makes us take, okay, that monster, the them, that we'd be tempted, like Jonah, to forever peg and basically say in our heads and hearts, God, you're not allowed to be kind to them. We have to take them from the group of the monsters into the group of sinful, broken people like me. And you have to take yourself from the group of the proud, innocent into, yeah, I'm in the group. I need grace from Jesus too. And that's something we have in common with the the worst villain in the universe. And people can miss the grace of God. Us and them is hard to continue around Jesus. Jonah had forgotten some things about himself and his people. He seems to have already forgotten about Jonah too. You know? He's 600 miles away from Israel and Nineveh. And forgetting these basic gospel things is very dangerous. Towards the end of the Apostle Peter's life, when he writes 2 Peter 1, he's encouraging Christians to keep on growing in the beginning of 2 Peter And he says, this is how to continue spiritual growth. You've been Christians for a while. Here's how to continue. Seek to grow in these qualities of faith, goodness, self-control, brotherly affection, and love. For if these qualities are yours, verse 8, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has been cleansed from his former sins. That's sobering, isn't it? You can know Jesus, but be unfruitful in that knowledge and ineffective in it. And if that's you, you've forgotten something. You've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your sins. And you need to let that, in a new way, shock you and soften you. You can be a Christian, but you need to not forget. You need to say, I have been forgiven by a holy, just God of everything. And my sins are permanently far away from me. And that needs to soften me in this moment. That's what's at stake. And the good news is that, okay, Jonah walks away. Jonah leaves. But God's not done. With Jonah or with you and me. So let's see what God does with Jonah. Listen to how God engages engages Jonah. Starting with verse 5. Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat in it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. When the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant 
so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry enough to die. I do well enough to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And that's the end of the book. Now, um, let's just go through this. Begins with Jonah on a hill, looking at Nineveh, east of the city. He sounds a little diabolical, doesn't he? He's just like on a hill of the city, probably pinching it in between his fingers in the distance. Like imaginary, imaginary like fire missiles coming down. Like it's like mentally blowing up. Like he just, he sounds diabolical. God has said he's had mercy, but he wants to see. You know, maybe he'll get his way. And God engineers another object lesson. Jonah builds this little booth thing because he's going to hang out on the hill east of the city. And God uh, appoints this plant to grow. And Jonah loves it and he's really excited about it. He's exceedingly pleased about the plant. And then God kills it. God makes it die immediately. And it's really hot. And he pities the plant. And he feels sorry for himself. And he wants to die again. Um, It's like his thing, you know, wanting to die. Like when he's having a bad day. It's like, Jonah, you're playing that card a lot. Like you want to die. You're so upset about Nineveh. Like his life's mission is destroyed. He's like, I would rather not have died then the enemy of my country be spared. And he throws that on the table, and he says he's angry. Okay, this is why this is, acknowledging this is an argument. He's angry, ultimately at who? At God. He's exceedingly angry, and God, God asks this question, okay, You pity the plant. You didn't make it. You didn't labor. You didn't create it. Should I not pity 120,000 people, this great city? What's the implication? Whom I did create. We see the compassion of a creator God. Jonah did not work, create the plant, yet he pities it. God invites us into his perspective. I did make these people. And should I not pity them? And one of my kids asked me recently, are there any verses in the Bible about animal cruelty? And I thought of the last phrase of Jonah, and and many cattle. (laughs) You know? And all the cattle. And God has pity. And he says, and they don't know the right hand from their left. What's he saying? They're spiritually lost. They're lost. God looks at a world that does not know him 
acknowledge him, thank him, or seek him. And lives that out in violent ways and has compassion. Now, we're reading this much later, thousands of years later, and we know where this pity and compassion of God led. The pity and compassion of God, the Creator, is expressed in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. The pity of God leads to the sending of Jesus and the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb of Jesus. God didn't walk by the world and say, that's a mess. But he did something to it to the extent of becoming involved in the person of his son. He sent his son. The compassion of God the creator is is fully expressed in the son of God, the redeemer. And it's important to reflect on God's character reflected then in Jesus. Matthew 9, Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. And therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus sees something. If you took, I think this means this. If, you're, if you took Jesus for a drive, Jesus sees the people of the world and the cities of the world and villages of the world and sees what's at the core of our human experience, we're lost without God, and we feel it, even if we deny it. And he has compassion, and he says to his, to his people, that's why you need to pray that there'll be more people, basically, to plant churches, to found communities of Jesus, to share the best news in the universe, to go out into this world with the news of what God has done. Even his own city, Jerusalem, the city that would crucify him. Luke 19, Jesus drew near, saw the city, and wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. That's how Jesus sees. And I, if you're wondering what happens, it ends, the book ends pretty dramatically, Right? And kind of dark in some ways, kind of stunning. This is God's drop the mic moment. God asks this question, should I not pity the great city of Nineveh, Nineveh, 120,000 people? Boom. I think an encouraging thing in reflecting on this passage this week, how do we get this? Only from Jonah. And we only get this only if Jonah, how did this ever make it back to Israel? Only if Jonah had a 600-mile journey to think about the dealing of the Creator God with him. And Jonah had to share with somebody what happened. And so, and it's in our Bible because of that. 
where does this leave us? Three challenges from this, okay? And this is where we'll end. Three challenges. The first is this. This is the compassion of God. This is the pity of God. Ask yourself this question. Do you reflect God's heart? Do you have this compassion? And that, that'll come to the front. It'll need to come to the front when confessed with need, when confessed with lostness. If you're a Christian and there's people in your life you just think it's toxic and dumb and kind of stupid and your attitudes towards them and if you're able, by God's grace, to be lovingly engaging and, hum- and humble, that will reflect God's heart. And you need to know this. You won't reflect God's compassion until you've known God's compassion for you. For those of you uh, who are exploring Jesus, exploring Christianity, the, the gospel is there is something to receive. And you won't reflect God's passion, compassion to the world until you receive it for yourself in the person of Jesus. There's something to receive. The, the mission statement of our church, like all the Liberty Churches, are to live, speak, and serve the very presence of Jesus. Live, speak, and serve the very presence of Jesus. What do we need individually for that to happen, and together as a community, we need to be on the receiving end of the presence of Jesus. We need to experience the presence of Jesus and have that, and that's a process, right? Letting that sink sink into our souls and into our bones. Have you received it? And do you see that you're called to live that out, to reflect that? Second challenge is this. Recipients of God's grace are called to be sharers of God's grace. Jonah was a saved man, right? He's saved. And God's like, yeah, man, take two, do over, go to where I told you to go, share what I've told you to share. And we're called to be, we're called to, called to be conduits, not cul-de-sacs. Cul-de-sacs end, right? There's nowhere to, here we circle, there's nowhere, nowhere to go. God's grace is meant to come in our lives. And through our deeds of service and love, and that's like, you know, take everything mundane from like helping your neighbor rake his leaves just because he needs the help. Terrible illustration for the spring. Should have thought of a spring one. We're not doing that right now. In the fall, uh, it is terribly mundane and also absolutely it covers the most powerful and vulnerable words of grace. It's sharing the gospel with people. It's telling people about Jesus. Some of that's your own story. When I'm, uh, when we do the, have people come into covenant and they write out their story, their spiritual snapshot, and that's something we do when people join. Liberty Churches, we tend to have them, hey, write out something you'd like to share. And a lot of times people are tempted to round out the rough edges of their story. Um, we had a guy join Liberty East who like became an atheist. He grew up, he was near the church, but became an atheist, kind of flipped out and lived in the woods for a while as a squatter. I'm like, that's an interesting story. <laughs> Go ahead and share that. And somehow... There are still people in his life. God met him, and he's married, and uh, 
has learned to be a plumber and provides for his family and is faithful to his wife. And he's changed. I'm like, don't dumb down your story. Don't round out the edges. Share your story of grace. Uh, We need to do that with our secret addictions. We need to share the stories of grace that our lives are. Uh, Think of what it would have been like for Jonah to recount the story of Jonah. I mean, the depth of his rebellion and the depth of God's grace to save him. Recipients of God's grace are called to be sharers of it. And it's how we live, and it's, yes, our words. And the third thing I just want to remind you of is, look, I, I know that the in this cultural moment, it's not a cool thing to be a Christian, but I want to just remind you that the gospel really is good news. It really is the best news in the universe. Uh, I was asked recently a, a few times about why Liberty has a key image. In one of the new Liberty churches, there's a new Liberty church in Newtown Square outside Philadelphia, and a guy who had replanted this dying church. It was a 185-year-old church, and he replanted it, and it's grown a bunch. And he made a bunch of these keys, and he's given them out, and he gave one to me. And uh, I've been carrying it around in my pocket. And when I'm, when I'm asked, why about the key? What's it with the Liberty key? And of course, if you look at the, at the key closely, the cross is in there. It reminds us of this truth. The gospel is a prison break. The gospel is the best news in, in the world. It's how to be free. And how should we act? If, if the gospel's in your heart, you've got a key in your pocket. How do we act if we've got the key to freedom in a world where people are enslaved and in chains? We share it. I try to tell them. The gospel's still good news. That people do not know that God is way more compassionate to them and way more ready to forgive them and way more welcoming to them and understanding of them and has done more for them in Jesus than they will ever fully get the depth of. That's still shocking good news to the world. And it's what God has put in our lives and it's the message he's given us to share. Uh, Liberty Harrisburg. You've got the best news in the universe in your heart and in your mouth. We're called to share it. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that uh, you would save us from Jonah's mistakes, like in our hardness, in our us, them, uh, in our looking at other people's motives differently than how we view our own, And we pray that we, in greater ways and in deeper ways, reflect to the world your compassion. We pray this for how we live, how we share, how we think about our time, our stuff. We pray that we would encourage each other in this. We pray that we would share, as we're able and as you allow and as you open up opportunities, our stories of grace. Uh, we, we pray that we, we won't um, dumb them down, but we would share with others the depth of your grace towards us 
and how you've softened us and saved us and are still doing that. Uh, Please do that. We pray for those here this morning who wonder if all this is true, if there really is a God that would welcome them and forgive them in Jesus Christ. Show them your reality and draw them to yourself. We, We pray that we would be a community that lives this out, that Jesus finds people here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Meet us at your table, we pray. Amen.